0: guys welcome to the j scott outdoors podcast this is episode number 418 and this is going to be a great episode with jim heffelfinger of the arizona game and fish department we're going to be talking about a kind of a sensitive subject here on wolves but before we get to that i want to thank the sponsors of this podcast i want to thank gohunt.com insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast I want to remind you guys that you can sign up for an insider membership. And if you don't have an insider membership and you apply in any of the Western states, I highly recommend this uh, resource. It is the best resource out there to investigate, draw odds, and harvest statistics and other pertinent data for applying for these states. You can use the J. Scott promo code when signing up. You're actually going to get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. You can immediately buy something with that gift card, uh, or you could put it towards another purchase, or you can use it to accumulate points. Uh, GoHunt Insider is also a phenomenal resource when it comes to their strategy articles and how to apply in these different states. So I can't encourage you enough to sign up for a GoHunt Insider membership. I also want to thank Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. Kuyu makes the best ultralight hunting gear available on the market today. also want to thank Phonescope.com, Cheston Davis, and his crew over there. If you use the jscott 16 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount on all products at Phonescope.com. And the Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority there in Arizona, use the J. Scott promo code, and you're going to get a 10% discount on all products there. Uh, you can call them one 800 or go to Outdoorsmans.com. Guys, thanks for all your avid support. Uh, we have uh, set another record uh, monthly podcast numbers uh, last month in March. And um, just really appreciate all the feedback and the support that you guys give this podcast. Let's get right to this episode. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns uh, in regards to this podcast, Comments, what have you, you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, please encourage you to follow along on my Instagram page as well, jscottoutdoors. You can send me an in- Instagram message there. So let's get right to this episode.
1: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a fun episode with Jim Heppelfinger from the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Jim is a certified wildlife biologist with degrees in wildlife management from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, and Texas
2: a and I believe, at Kingsmill. Is that right, Jim? Kingsville, that's right. And, and coincidentally, okay. my son's working on his Ph.D. down there on mule deer right now.
1: Really cool, really cool. Uh, you've worked at a bi- uh, as a biologist for the federal government, state wildlife agencies, universities, and in the private sector in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Uh, Jim has also authored and co-authored uh, hundreds of scientific papers, uh, book chapters, popular articles, and been in magazines. Uh, he is currently the chairman of the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies uh, Mule Deer Working Group, uh, which is an awesome group. That you, I, I got the fortune of talking to Jim a little bit coming back from the NWTF banquet, and they're doing some phenomenal stuff there. Um, and we'll get more into that. Uh, Jim, you've also helped out uh, with episodes on Leupold's Big Game Profile. You've wrote scripts for Boone and Crockett uh, Country, uh, and then the Mule Deer Working Group helped produce the program, Mule Deer Saving the Icon of the West. Uh, You're a professor of the University of Arizona, which, Jim, I have to say, uh, of all of your, of all of the things that you've got going for you, and then You're obviously every, with that. everybody knows me as an ASU Sun Devil, so I had to give you a little bit of a hard time. But you are uh, uh, a professor, adjunct professor at the University of Arizona. You're a professional member of the Boone and Crockett Club, and you currently uh, work as a wildlife science coordinator for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. With all that said, Jim, you have uh, credentials. Uh, that are unbelievable. You have a working background and knowledge, um, but the other thing I'd like to point out, uh, Jim, is you're you're an active hunter. You enjoy hunting. Uh, I also notice that you're in uh, into uh, tactical firearms and a lot of handgun. You like to shoot, you know, handguns. You know, in in your off time and your spare time, you even compete. I think. Uh, on a level, so you're a gun owner, you're a hunter, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited about having you on this podcast. Uh, Dar and I rode back on the same plane with you coming back from the M- NWTF convention, uh, and uh, it was great to, to finally meet you. I've read your I, I've read your book. Uh, your website is deernut.com, and uh, you, you know your book Deer of the Southwest. Was, a, was an awesome book, and I encourage any of the listeners out there to uh, make sure they get that book. It's so comprehensive, uh, talking about our deer, and Jim, I'm just
2: excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Uh, speaking of the book, the, uh, the book's out of print. It was so wildly successful, they sold out, and the uh, reprint, the second printing, will be available uh, in April, they tell me, so probably another four weeks or so. Um, and and that can be ordered on the the website as well. But you forgot to tell them when I when we first met when I walked on the bus and you saw my U of A logo and you were extolling <laughs> ex- about what a fantastic university that was and probably not only the best in the state but one of the best in the nation. That's why I remembered that. Was that? Might not remember you know correctly?
1: it's it's not it's not quite how I remember it but I it's one of those things I feel like it's a duty of mine as a Sun Devil to constantly at any given chance that I can give anybody that goes to the U of A or lives around the U of A or uh, quite honestly anybody that drives by the U of A I have to give them a hard time I think that's just part of being a Sun Devil but in in all fun uh, you know it's a fantastic university and um, we 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 do like to. Have a lot of badgering back and forth, and that's kind of the fun of it, um, Jim. I, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. One of the reasons is it's it's really nice to be able to talk to a wildlife biologist that has um, I- as much background as you do, and you obviously love deer. We're going to talk about uh, wolf reintroduction and some of the wolf issues that that Arizona's facing, as well as some of the the states uh around the west here but I, I first want to ask you about your love for deer and and you know
2: you're obviously a hunter yourself uh where did the love for deer start with you yeah with well, a website named deernut.com i think that probably says it all and i've got a, another email <laughs> address at Servidnut. nut of course Servids are any member of the the deer family um but i I I grew up in more of an urban environment in northern Illinois until I was in eighth grade, and, and my dad bought a hardware store in rural southern Wisconsin, and we moved to Wisconsin, and and um, I started in school in eighth grade noticing that all my friends were talking about squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting, and, and I couldn't believe that their parents at 14 were letting them walk around the woods with a real shotgun. I mean, I grew up kind of a um a, a densely urban area and so I started going out with them started hunting and then he just caught the bug from there and and as I went to uh get my bachelor's degree in wildlife because that's what I wanted to do in central Wisconsin at Stevens Point I didn't want to be a deer biologist I wanted to be um something else there was a lot of different deer biologists and and um I didn't think we needed it anymore and and I just I fell into it in in when I went on to graduate school and worked on trophy whitetails in South Texas and the effects of coyote predation on trophy whitetails, and then and then managed a ranch as as the manager of wildlife operations in South Texas, where you know you wouldn't even you wouldn't even tap your brakes if the buck was only 150 Boone and Crockett points because it wasn't worth stopping and looking at, um, and that kind of environment. Really, really breeds some some interest in certainly whitetails, and and I went down the road of just loving deer. I'm, I eventually got to Arizona as a biologist and started flying helicopter surveys right away with the seasoned biologists, and we're flying up in in whitetail country in southern Arizona and one of the biologists would say whoa look at that toad did you see that let's go back let's go back and we would go back and look at this buck and it was like 110 points I couldn't believe they turned a helicopter around for this tiny little whitetail um, and so then I eventually um, saw my first big desert mule deer and, and fell in love with mule deer and, and it's kind of focused a lot on mule deer since then but I have an appreciation for our little whitetail and I, and I promise that we won't talk about the pronunciation of of uh, Elliot's <laughs> last name, we can just kind of skip over that probably by now. <laughs> That's good
1: stuff. It, yeah, whether it's cows or coos, and and we all we all know, and and you can educate us. It, it's Elliot cows, but uh, most of the coos deer hunters that I know call it coos. And so there's this mm-hmm. this if if you're listening out there wondering what Jim's talking about, there's this whole uh, group different groups that you know call them cows deer, which is actually the correct pronunciation and then there's a bunch that say coos deer and regardless of what you call them they're fantastic deer uh jim you would agree and you know the the one question i would have if we're talking specifically about coos is you know you have a, a lot of background with those southern uh you know south texas deer uh you know from a biological standpoint what would be the differences between coos
2: deer and, say, a South Texas whitetail? It's, um, boy, it's size. And, and the reason that there's such a uh, size difference is that the, the little cow's whitetail and, and um, Elliot's last name was pronounced cows. If 90% of the people want to call it coos, I really could care less. The only thing I don't like is when someone um, starts talking about Elliot's last name is pronounced something else you know coos or cows or something it was not it was cows just like CoWS because I as I say in my book I talked to one of Elliot's great grandnephews in Boston and he assured me that from his uncle Elliot the great uncle Elliot on down the families always pronounce their last name as cows just like a bovine so I would much rather pronounce it coos because I, I think of these hunters. Talking loudly about all the cows that they've killed through the years and, you know, the non hunter overhearing that probably is not a great thing. But, um, but that, you know, it's whatever's correct is correct. And, and I never flinch if someone says coos. I could care less. But, um, we've actually done some genetic work and looking at South Texas whitetails, the Carmen Mountain whitetail, which is a, a whitetail that's in West Texas down into Coahuila in between. And then the cow's whitetail. And the cow's whitetail was, was fairly isolated down in the Sierra Madre during its whole um, evolution and development. And, and that's why it was was um, developed as a smaller animal. It didn't have the genetic interchange and the movement among the other tails. It kind of just developed smaller down there because of the arid, less productive habitat compared to in South Texas where there's so much high-protein leguminous browse and 30 inches of rainfall in South Texas and such. So it's just a, a smaller southwestern adaptation to a, a less um, a less lush environment. For sure, and then and
1: and and I promise the listeners we're going to get into the wolf stuff, but uh, the and I, I I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's the croaky mule deer or
2: croaky mule deer. Can you talk a yeah, little bit I about Yeah, named after those. those. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, j- named talk after about General those Crook. Two. Yeah, the um, the crook eye mule deer is the it's just a subspecies name. Um, for the uh, southwestern, one of the desert subspecies. Now, there really isn't any difference between the desert subspecies, and I, I wrote a paper in 2000, a scientific paper, that showed that that crook eye name was actually not valid because it was, uh, it was based on a, a specimen that was actually a white mule deer hybrid. And, um, and according to the taxonomic rules, it invalidates that whole name crook mm-hmm. eye. So that you won't see anybody using that subspecies name anymore, but it originally designated this, um, lighter, lighter in color, um, lighter in weight kind of desert version of the, the mule deer, which in itself is, um, is pretty cool. But there's, um, there's a southern California, kind of southwestern Arizona mule deer that some people call a burrow deer. And designated as separate from a, a crook eye, the other desert mule deer. None of that's really valid. We've got we've got desert mule deer, and it gradually grades up through Prescott and central New Mexico up into a larger, darker, heavier uh, Rocky Mountain
1: mule deer. And is that, in your opinion, why, like Boone and Crockett, doesn't have a distinction between, well? Mm -hmm. in your mind is that why they don't distinguish between the two that it's it's still the same deer
2: yeah you because you can't draw a line anywhere we you know we can go up and look at those deer on the kaibab and we can go down south of tucson and and look at those mule deer and boy they look like different critters you can you can tell if you see a head mount a shoulder mount you can tell exactly if it came from a, a desert area or a rocky mountain area but there's no place you can draw a line in between there, and, and so that's problematic if you're going to designate record book categories. Not that all of the lines between the record book categories are clean, but you, you should have some kind of some kind of break, at least, and not a continuous, what biologists call a climb from kind of a desert mule deer to a bigger Rocky Mountain mule deer. Okay, that's good stuff. Um, and then before we get
1: into the wolf stuff, I want to also ask you about uh, you You do actively shoot a lot of handguns and, and you're really into uh, target practicing and, and such. And even at a competitive level, I believe, talk a little bit about your love for that.
2: Sure, yeah. I, um, years ago, just and I don't know how I became interested in pistols, but I'm working on probably a remote ranch in South Texas. I, I had a pistol and, and just started reading more about competition and and um, started getting involved in some of the USPSA is one, um, United States Practical Shooting Association is one form of uh, competitive shooting. International Defensive Pistol Association, IDPA is another. I, I shoot both of those. Um, there's a lot of different steel matches steel challenge and um, our local range in tucson has the steel workers and there's there's other matches up in um, in phoenix phoenix and tucson have really been the mecca the national mecca for competitive shooters back in the 80s some of the big names really got started there and a few of them are still shooting but that's really my my outside of wildlife management um uh, passion and i and i I try to shoot, I'll shoot competitively about once a week normally. And that's your way of getting out
1: and, and that's kind of your hobby that you enjoy outside of your work that you can you can do and, and, and you know, it's, it's something that you can do with, you know, on your own time and you can also shoot competitively. Mm-hmm. Do you get just as much kick out of going out and practicing
2: as you do as actual competing yeah, I don't. I don't get a chance to go out and just practice per se, but I'll shoot local matches on the weekend and evening matches sometimes in in Phoenix, um, which are just low key. I like the, It's just really fun to have some local shooting friends. The camaraderie. A lot of my shooting friends are not hunters. Some of them are. A lot of them are not hunters. And for me, my work is so intense. I work so hard. I work so much. It's fun for me to go to the range on the weekend, shoot a pistol match, and interact with a lot of people that aren't going to ask me why they didn't get drawn for elk, and and we just, we talk about guns, and we shoot pistols, and it's kind of a fun other thing to do other than what I do 60 hours a week um, otherwise. Sure. Sure. Well, that's awesome. Well, I want to dive into a subject
1: that's oftentimes controversial. Um, We're hearing quite a bit about it right now. Um, To put a little context to from where I come from, uh, I'm I'm actually up in Colorado right now, um, and my wife and I spend the summers up here. And we were actually up here doing a little bit of snow skiing. And in the Aspen Airport, up on the wall are these kind of big murals, and it's restoring Colorado's natural balance. And it's uh, the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project And, you know, there's a picture of a wolf, and it's, you know, did you know, and it says, for eons, wolves thrived throughout Colorado. Pioneers traveling westward into Colorado in the 19th century wrote in the journals about the howl of the wolf and the land-rich wildlife. And, you know, then there's another one that says, um, you know, however, in those days, progress meant taming the land and cleansing it of its predators Wolves became the target of an extermination campaign. In 1945, the howl of the wolf was silenced in Colorado, and when the last one was shot, since then the wolf population in Colorado has stood at zero. Uh, Times have changed, and today we understand wolves better. After decades of successful wolf recovery in the West, isn't it time the wolf to roam Colorado's Rocky Mountains once again? Uh, with vast wildlands and abundant natural prey, western Colorado holds great promise for the wolf in the twenty first century. Yet wolves remain conspicuously absent from the wild in the scenic place. And basically then there was some pictures of wolves and what have you. And so here's a petition to the public to like, you know, make bring the wolves back again. So that that's one thing. The other thing is I come from a ranching background, uh, a, a, gr- a grandson of a rancher. Uh, I'm a sportsman, obviously. I'm, I'm a professional outfitter. I'm a guide. I love Arizona's, uh, you know, deer elk, all of our big game animals. And, you know, then we had the Mexican wolf uh, reintroduction, uh, we had the, you know, the wolves up on the White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. I'm sure you're cringing at all of these generalizations, but you can dive into it. In a no, minute. that's fine. Um, but I, I come from kind of a background of someone that lives in Arizona, someone that sees what went on in Yellowstone, someone that sees what all of the surrounding areas of, say, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, and all of the repercussions of, those wolves and and how, you know, in my mind, that population got out of control. Um, There's so much politics to all of it. And then, you know, boom, the reintroduction of the Mexican gray wolf in Arizona and how a lot of people thought that this was a great idea. From my perspective as a sportsman and as a grandson of a rancher, I don't see the huge benefits of having a wolf Whereas you know we have lots of coyotes and lots of other mountain lions and other predators, uh, the wolf always seems like it's something that you know comes into an area and over time ends up wiping out most of the deer, most of the elk, most of the moose. I had a friend I was riding on a chairlift the other day, and he says, you know, I went to here in Colorado. There was a guy that did a big presentation on wolves and he said I can't believe it but I've always thought wolves were bad and they ate everything but he he pointed out that wolves are you know not bad and that they don't eat everything out of house and home and I just flat looked at him on the chair and I said we we just need to agree to disagree on this because <laughs> from what from everything I've heard and seen wolves that go left unmanaged." Uh, basically they eat every deer and elk and moose in the the countryside. So with all that being said, I kind of want to set the stage of kind of how my attitude is towards wolves. And I'm curious from someone as you're a hunter yourself, you're a wildlife biologist, um, I'd like to have you educate me and the listeners a little bit on uh all of this wolf reintroduction the mexican gray wolf you know
2: speak to the yellowstone stuff kind of just give us Mm -hmm. let's talk about it that's perfect that was the absolute perfect foundation to jump off um and and gave me an idea of how to maybe step through it a little more logically so first for everybody and when we you and i have just talked a little bit about wolves we haven't even talked uh, all that much um, about my past involvement and what I've been involved in, so let me lay that that groundwork i I'm not involved in anything in colorado that's a that's a a concerted advertising campaign that started up about a year and a half ago, led i believe by Mike Phillips the executive director of the endangered uh, of, of Turner endangered species fund and I say that because he told me and some other people that he was going to crank up a, a campaign to to, um, to really to market wolves to Coloradans and, and get a groundswell of, of grassroots effort to support wolf recovery there, not necessarily Mexican wolf recovery, but just and, and he said that not just Mexican wolf recovery, just wolves in general. So that what you're you're seeing you're seeing the products of that advertising um, campaign. That I'm I'm not involved in that at all, and, and really honestly haven't even kept track of that. But they've been having workshops and and. You know, airport signs and TV commercials and all kinds of things, um, just to kind of warm Coloradans up for, or attempt to anyway, for right. wolves. So, so that's not my deal. But I've been involved in the last seven years is is working with the Fish and Wildlife Service, other experts, other uh, state game and fish agencies, and in, in trying to draft a recovery plan revision. So, the Mexican Mexican wolves. Um, went extinct in the wild in about 1980. There weren't any in the wild. Before they went extinct, the Fish and Wildlife Service paid a a trapper to go down into uh, Mexico and see if he could trap a couple of uh, wolves and bring them into captivity for a captive breeding program. And he was successful in in trapping, I believe it was, five and brought them into captivity, there was a few bona fide Mexican wolves in captivity that they added those to, and, and um, they started a captive breeding um, program that now numbers about 280 uh, Mexican wolves in, in captivity, and they all originated from seven individuals. So you might hear people talking about genetic uh, diversity, and, and that's why all Mexican wolves on the planet come from seven individuals. So they have all those wolves in captivity. Um, and, and uh, in, 19, in um, uh, let's see, 1998, we started releasing, released 11 in Arizona, and that began the actual recovery into the wild. More recently, there's been some released in, in Mexico. Um, but that began the, the reintroduction and recovery of Mexican wolves in the southwest. A recovery plan was written in 1982. Um, and recovery plans are supposed to set forth the, the the thresholds of, okay, when we have this many wolves, we're going to consider those no longer in danger of extinction. We're going to take them off the endangered species list, and we're going to turn their management over to the states. That's what the Endangered Species Act is supposed to be. It's, it's in fact, not supposed to be an, an overarching um, long-term kind of management structure. It's supposed to be like an ICU, if, if you're in danger of dying, you go to in the intensive care unit, they save you from dying. But once they you're out of the woods and they save you from, from actually being in danger of dying, then you, you go to the hospital or you go home for more long-term care. And that's exactly what the Endangered Species Act is. It's just supposed to get the animals out of the ICU and, and turn their management over to state agencies. And as we've seen with a lot of species, there are some groups, mostly environmentally oriented groups, that want to use the Endangered Species Act as a tool to keep wolves listed forever and, um, and never fall into the evil hands of the state wildlife management agencies, which uh, they don't trust because we actually hunt animals. And so my involvement in wolf recovery was to... Um, revise that 1982 recovery plan because that didn't set forth any clear thresholds for when they would be taken off the endangered species list. And that's a problem. We, we were releasing wolves into the wild and there was no clear end game for when they were gonna be delisted. De- de- and so there was a, a push to try to revise that original 1982 plan that was really too vague to, um, to be useful into something that actually had hard thresholds and said when we have this number of wolves in these places, they come off the endangered species list, management's turned over the state agencies so we can manage wolves like we manage um, the prey animals, we need to manage predators just like we manage prey, and, and state agencies frankly manage a couple species of fox and coyotes and wolves and bears and other carnivores, there's no reason they shouldn't be managing wolves, so that's the goal. Um, my role in wolf recovery and that of others from state agencies and a few other experts that were called in was to try to make sure the recovery of that, the, the revision of that recovery plan was done in such a way that it, it resulted in um, a reasonable course of action for the, the future, not a, a case where we were just going to craft some recovery criteria so that the wolves would never be delisted, and there were people involved in the process from academic backgrounds um, and maybe from some agency background, not from the state agencies, that really wanted the bar super high so it could never be reached, and and so that began this struggle of seven years that I was involved in, of battling with people with that kind of mindset um, to try to get a revised recovery plan that actually had some achievable and reasonable and pragmatic goals that once they really were no longer in danger of extinction, they don't need to be protected by the Endangered Species Act anymore. They can move over to the states, and and we can manage them at an appropriate level with complete public input, listening to all sides. Um, And so that was my role in Mexican wolf recovery. Um, What you hear, you mentioned Yellowstone and uh, and and actually should probably tell everybody that revised recovery plan was signed last November, November of two thousand and seventeen the plan was signed. Um, it does have some very reasonable thresholds of when we're going to consider wolves to be no longer in danger of extinction and turned over to the state and those thresholds in a nutshell are 320 wolves in the u.s and arizona and new mexico and 200 wolves in mexico so two populations of those totaling um, 520 and that's the lower threshold so there'll be more wolves than that it's not like when we get to 321 we start hunting them we need to make sure that we maintain at least that number because that's the number we decided is is uh, the point where they're not in danger of extinction, and so um, we so we've got this plan, and and it's a reasonable plan. It's well grounded in science. There's a lot of attacks on it right now by environmental groups that didn't get what they wanted. Of course, they wanted, as I mentioned, these uh, incredible uh, criteria that could never be reached, and and I think what we've got is something that satisfies the the legal and 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 our requirements for the Endangered Species Act to bring those animals so they're not going to be extinct. But also um, is mindful of of ranchers and hunters and other stakeholders that live and work on the landscape. We we don't live in a, a pristine environment, and we can't let wolf populations just run unfettered to to have a wolf decide how many are going to be out there. I mean, we want we've got to be able to maintain the wolf as a as a member of the southwestern group of wildlife that we have, but not be to the point where they're going to be causing uh, unacceptable impacts to livestock operations. Unacceptable impacts to our elk populations, which um, which brings us to the Yellowstone issue. A lot of people point to Yellowstone and see how that elk population was was devastated after they put wolves in there. And, and the environmental group it's used by both sides of the argument. Some of the some of the environmentalists and some of the uneducated public will say. Look, we need to bring wolves back because look what they did in Yellowstone. We put them in there, and we've got more birds and butterflies and beavers, and the aspen are growing, and every it just changed the course of rivers. If you've seen that yep, that YouTube um, video that full of ridiculous yeah. errors. Um, but, but the environmentalists say, look at it, they just it, we need wolves to restore the ecosystem. Um, and they point to Yellowstone, and other people point to Yellowstone and say, well, we'll look, a wolves devastated that elk population. Um, we don't want wolves where we are. And, that, and as is often the case in nature, um, it's much more complicated than that. What happened in Yellowstone is they released the wolves. The wolves um, introduced this, this higher predation rate on elk, um, certainly, but the presence of wolves also brought the coyote population way down. So you had much less predation on some of the, the young fawns and the young calves by coyotes. So that was a counterbalancing effect. But more importantly, what happened for the next couple of decades after wolves were released in Yellowstone was they had a series of, of dry summers that uh, measurably decreased the wolf rec- the, uh, the elk recruitment into the the elk population. And there's so many people researching in Yellowstone that we've got good information on a whole bunch of different facets and those summer droughts definitely decreased. Recruitment into the elk population. Um, also had those big fires in the late 1980s which really dramatically changed that ecosystem before wolves were put in there. So there were changes of um, recovering from that. Um, and we also had, during that time we were harvesting cow elk, because it was the only way we could manage the elk population in Yellowstone, not being able to hunt in Yellowstone, they were having a hunt um, in Montana right off the park boundary when those elk left in the winter to go down on winter range, and they'd harvest them with cow hunts after that. Well, they were doing surveys as this elk population was starting to decline because of that and and um, changes in the habitat, and they were noticing this decline in elk population, but as they surveyed, it was hard to say whether... They really got an accurate survey each year. They started to wonder if maybe the elk were going out farther on winter range, and they just weren't catching them on the survey. And as a result, they kept the number of cow tags up, probably in retrospect higher than they should have. And so, even the cow harvest on that elk population contributed um, to that that decline in the in the overall elk population. So, you had an elk population where they were surveying seventeen thousand elk. And then after 10 or 15 years, they were surveying, I think about 4,000 elk um, off of that. But people point to that and say wolves did all that, but wolves didn't do all that. It was kind of a perfect storm of a lot of different factors affecting that uh, that elk population to cause that decline. And so we, there's no way you'd expect that same thing to happen in in Arizona. We're not going to have um, wolf populations grow and grow and grow. And if you look. Many people have probably seen that graph of that wolf population growth in Yellowstone. It was pretty incredible. It just went up and up and up. There were over, I think, at one point, 113 wolves in Yellowstone. And then when that elk population went down, the number of wolves went went way down with it. It was just kind of a classic peak and and um, and decline. But we wouldn't expect that same thing to happen in our working landscape in in the Southwest as what happened in the, the national park to just have that just had that that number of factors that happen all at the same time. Okay, so that I, whole hear what idea... you're,
1: I hear what you're
2: saying, but my question
1: would be you don't expect that to happen because of those several of the factors, the fires and, you know, the over-harvest over, over harvest of the cows by the hunters and what have you, but someone with the skeptical nature like I have is, well, what if it did happen, Jim? And what And what can the Arizona Game and Fish do to try and look at what's been done and try and mitigate, or try and you know make it not as you know, basically don't follow
2: the same path that they yep. followed before. Yeah, those are the conversations we've been having for um, not all of the seven years I've been involved because the early parts were a little were a little different, um, but the last four years or so that we've um, the states of the state agency have been more involved. Those are the conversations we've had already, and that was the argument, and that was the fight to get recovery criteria to a point where they were reasonable. And so, I've spent an awful lot of time uh, over the last few years calculating um, ungulate biomass, how much wolf food we have out uh, per square mile, and out there in the southwest, and uh, how many wolves can that support. And it's a it's a very tough thing to do, but I spent a lot of time looking at that from a lot of different angles, and and with uh with our threshold of 320 looking at all the information you can with the number of, of elk and deer that we've got out there 320 wolves shouldn't impact that that should not be a level where it impacts uh elk population significantly and so so when we were building those thresholds in we were already thinking about um, what are we going to do to make sure that doesn't happen what happened in Yellowstone we are able to implement some some management, and in the recovery plan, it talks about once you get over that threshold um, in the mid 350, 380, you can start implementing some um, some management on the wolves. If it's if it's seriously impacting an elk population, there are tools like um, part of the Endangered Species Act has a thing called a 4D rule as part of it that allows you to set up an area, and if you can show the wolves are are really impacting elk populations. You can you can actually first we would be removing wolves probably and taking them to the other recovery area in Mexico if that wasn't recovered yet. But you can remove wolves and you can and that can be lethal and it can be um, just through translocation. So we've in this revised plan we've built in safeguards so that we the wolf population is not just going to run amok in Yellowstone and increase and increase. And part of that was a um, part of that was litigation. In, in Yellowstone. The, the original Yellowstone recovery criteria were three populations of 100. And then shortly after that, I don't know the details of why, but they got together and they decided to move it to three populations of, of 150 each. Well, it was the, those three populations combined were 1,700 wolves before Congress delisted it because every time the Fish and Wildlife Service tried to delist them, environmental groups would sue and, and find a sympathetic judge to get them relisted on the endangered species list. And that same thing has happened in the Midwest, and the same thing will happen in the Southwest with Mexican wolves. When we hit those recovery criteria and move to delist wolves, environmental groups will sue uh, and looking for loopholes and looking for details that they can try to convince a judge that that they're not, in fact, out of the woods yet and we need to um, keep them on the endangered species list. And we just have to fight those fights. There's no way you can prevent that. Um, there, those groups are always going to sue to to keep wolves listed. They always have. Uh, and that's, plan I mean, that we've one got.
1: My my biggest worries is that, you know, what you're telling me is wolves are here in Arizona, and you know the 19 it was set forth in 1982, and what you guys did is made a recovery plan to try and, in essence, keep that
2: in check. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're not having a discussion anymore about whether we're going to recover um, Mexican wolves in the Southwest. That that um, that bus left the station a long time ago. We we will have we have an obligation to recover all native species and, and all sportsmen, um, myself included, I've written book chapters and, and magazine articles and even scientific papers bragging about hunters have, have been the, the forefront of wildlife conservation and, and population and species restoration in the Southwest. We're hunters and we like to hunt, we like to say hunter hyphen conservationists because we're the true conservationists that really saved all these large mammals, whereas Europe lost a lot of theirs. And we, we as sportsmen, were at the forefront of saving um, those animals. And it's, it's. um, I don't think hunters want to be at the forefront of saying, "Well, we just want to save the ones that we want to hunt. We just want to save the ones that we eat." Either we're conservationists and we're going to conserve native wildlife and and restore native wildlife, or we're not. I don't think we. I I don't. I personally don't think that the future of hunting is in a good position if hunters in mass come out and say. We just want to save the animals that we hunt, and we don't want to save our competitors.
1: Okay, so in essence, what you're saying is, Jay, don't be ignorant. Wolves are here. What you would tell me personally is, Jay, wolves are here. What I'm trying to do and what the Game and Fish is trying to do is put together a plan that we can manage these. We know that we're going to face opposition and we know that we're going to face lawsuits and what have you from the environmentalist side and what have you. But, uh, you know, obviously you can't speak for mm-hmm. the Arizona Game of Fish, but in essence, you're trying to say we're trying to make the best of what's already happening.
2: Yeah, yeah. In that respect, I, I certainly do speak for the department because that's what we've all been working on, and in in being involved in this recovery plan and not letting some preservation-minded people take it and run with it, which frankly is what um, what happened several times. Our our effort to to revise that recovery plan was the fourth effort to revise a recovery plan, and the first couple not always because of disagreements, sometimes because of legal reasons. Um, the other recovery plans were not successful, and I didn't mean the other recovery teams were not successful in, in doing that. And I was placed on the third recovery team to craft a, a meaningful recovery plan in 2010, and that started my involvement. And I I was the odd man out. There was uh, eight other scientists on that recovery team, and I was the only one battling for reasonable and achievable recovery criteria. Everybody else um, was arguing for all kinds of complicated recovery criteria that would would result in wolves permanently being on the endangered species list. So I was in the trenches, and after two years um, of of my viewpoint really just being rolled over and, and ignored. Um, I, in, in December of 2012, after two years of that, I resigned from the recovery team and resigned with not only a resignation letter but about a 14-page report pointing out all the scientific flaws and in, in process and science in the way they were headed. And when I did that in December of 2012, uh, the the recovery team... They had a meeting scheduled, so they met one more time, but that was it. They, they, they were put on the back burner. Um, I believe because the, the flaws that I pointed out were serious flaws that they couldn't continue through after I pointed them out publicly. And actually that report, I think, still resides on the Arizona Game of Fish website for anybody to, to look at. Although most of those, most of those things that were flaws at that time, we've worked through and improved. But, um, just to give you a background of where, you know, how long I've been battling. For just as you say, wolves are being recovered, and Arizona Game of Fish supports wolf recovery, but supports wolf recovery only in a way where um, we're set for some, some reasonable criteria to get them off the endangered species list, and we have some safeguards built in to make sure that they're, they're, not, um, they're not just running unfettered in as many wolves as, uh, as some of the other groups want out there.
1: So it had to feel a little bit like you were the lone
2: uh, – it's, it's kind of a funny use of words, but you were the lone wolf in essence in fighting, <laughs> I actually fighting have a, against these things. <laughs> I actually have a T-shirt that says One Man Wolf Pack, and that was kind of the joke that I was a one-man wolf pack <laughs> back then. But so I, if, when if, we, it, I was going to say when we would do doodle polls to get the next recovery team meeting together, I would actually sign it instead of my name if most listeners know what a doodle poll is. Um, online to, to schedule a meeting, I would instead of sign my name, I would sign minus one because the re, the rest of the recovery team started writing documents to say that the recovery team feels, and then in parentheses they would put minus one. That was me who disagreed <laughs> with everybody. And I wrote three different dissenting, long, detailed scientific dissenting opinions throughout that whole process about how we were headed in the wrong direction as a team. It was a, It was a real difficult time because I saw – um, a lot of strong personalities that were 100% preservation minded and and did not have people living on the ground in mind with the kind of things they were suggesting. And so it was pretty tough for me to battle against um, some some very intelligent and very nice people, people I I enjoy spending time with as long as we're not uh, talking about wolf recovery. but. It was a difficult time for me and, and really the process that we went through in the last three years where the Fish and Wildlife Service set that team aside, didn't use them as a team anymore, they invited some of those experts to the table over the last couple of years to help draft the revised recovery uh, plan but they weren't in the driver's seat, they were advisors to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And they invited the four Southwestern state agencies, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado, to the table to also be advisors. And, and it was then when you had uh, a more balanced representation when we got an actual recovery plan that the Fish and Wildlife Service could, could with a straight face, sign off on and know that that this is a recovery plan to get them off the endangered species list, but it's not a plan Um, to keep them on there forever when you uh, i just want to go back to a couple things you said when you
1: said it's 520 wolves total 320 i believe you said in the u.s 200 in mexico did i understand you correctly Mm -hmm. to say 320 in
2: the u.s yes and yeah split between arizona and new mexico and um so that's all arizona and and new mexico from the border from the mexican border up to i-40 um in, in what we call the 10 J area, which is actually the area where, um, we're recovering wolves. But it's all south of I-40, not in southern Colorado like some groups have, have wanted. Um, and, and really when you look at, and I, I have this gigantic spreadsheet that if you could print it out in a plotter it would be like a tablecloth and it's all tiny numbers where I calculated number of elk, number of mule deer, number of, of, uh, whitetail in each game management unit converted that to pounds of um ungulates pounds of prey converted that to pounds of edible prey did calculations with how much meat each wolf would um would eat in a year and and did like I say that's pretty gigantic and it's full of those kind of calculations and any way you look at it um 300, 400 wolves is, is really is not going. It, it doesn't look like it's going to depress elk populations. We've got productive enough elk populations that um, every different way you can calculate that the number of territories we have, the number of packs we have, how many elk a pack will eat during the year. It's hard to it's hard from a meat perspective to um, to show elk to show elk populations dramatically from a statewide perspective being impacted now in some areas like unit one and 27 over by alpine eastern arizona there's no evidence that the elk population is affected yet but you could get like they did in in montana there's a Lolo herd that decreased uh dramatically and, and some people felt were was uh elk elk predation um doing that and i'm not sure if that actually was uh was the case, but you could certainly get some hot spots where, where wolves I mean, are depressing. Predation, wolf predation, yes. right? Yep. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wolf predation on elk. And so we could get some areas in the southwest, certainly a few game management units where we have um, density, a high density of wolves. We could have them after a series of years um, decrease the elk population locally in those areas. So it's, it's not like wolves aren't going to affect elk anywhere, um, but... But we've got things built into this plan that if you can demonstrate that the elk population is is being uh, is declining dramatically in the face of and because of wolf predation, then then we can we can do different management. We can have management there. We can pull wolves out of there. Um, when we get enough wolves, we can at least remove wolves even before they're taken off the endangered species list. You know, I knew a guy, a biologist in Idaho, that was authorizing a lot of wolf killing when they were still listed. Uh, up there in the in the northern Rockies, so you you can kill wolves while they're still listed, but it has to be done under certain rules of the Endangered Species Act. We do have tools where we can manage wolves it 's not just hands off um, until they're completely delisted and I was talking to David Meach, okay. who arguably the the most famous wolf guy um, anywhere and and I talked to him a lot during this process and and he was he's always been very very much for a practical uh, management of, uh, of wolves. Um, um, he's, he's got a good pragmatic approach to wolf recovery. In fact, he wrote a paper once where he said, uh, that if the wolf advocates or wolf activists, um, would, would agree to non-government control of wolves, which in a way is hunting, we could have more wolves in more places if people didn't just, um, demand that it was only government and there was no hunting. Um, so he's got a very pragmatic approach at it, and, and he told me, when, when we were talking about 200 wolves up in Arizona, New Mexico, 300 wolves, he said, well, do you have coyotes up there? I said, yeah, we got, we got a lot of coyotes all over there. He said, well, if you think about it, the Mexican wolf is just a little bit bigger than a coyote, and a coyote will eat everything his size and smaller, and a Mexican wolf can eat everything from about elk size down to a mouse size. And so there's, there's a lot of alternative prey out there for a carnivore, um, like a Mexican wolf, which isn't like a big Canadian wolf. It's it's just a little bit bigger than a coyote. So it, it helped me kind of think about our landscape probably could support some 60 to 80-pound um, carnivores out there, a lot more than you would think. Sometimes some people think 300, wow, that's a lot of wolves. But Right now, we have 114 in that area and not seeing any impacts, and there's a whole bunch of country where there aren't even any wolves yet. And we're not even seeing impacts where there are fairly dense populations of wolves. So I think we can have a lot more wolves than we kind of think we can before we start seeing impacts. Let's hope you're right, Jim.
1: Let's hope you're right. A couple questions. one would be when those Mexican grey wolves were first introduced back into Arizona. Were they introduced on the White Mountain Apache Indian Reservation or
2: where was where were the, the um transplant sites or reintroduction? I don't sites? think I don't actually I wasn't involved back then and I don't I don't remember exactly where the site was, but I don't think it was on the White Mountain. I don't think okay. we started on tribal lands, but I just don't remember off the top of my head where those release locations were.
1: Okay, and then from your studies, you said, uh, you know, it goes to I-40 to the north. So you're telling me that, yes, Jay, for sure, there there are cases where there were wolves, you know, all the way up to I-40. So this isn't a line that, you know, you had to go, well, okay, I'll give in to that. I mean, there were proven cases that Mexican
2: gray wolves existed up to the I-40 line. That's about the best line because, and that's it's good we talk about um, historical range. There were, wolf, there were wolves all over, but if you look at the historical records, and I don't know if I sent you, I wrote a manuscript on uh, the historical range of the Mexican wolf, and I had to do that because a lot of people were arguing, well, Mexican wolves, um, you know, they went up into Colorado and Utah, so we should use Colorado and Utah for recovery areas, and, and they didn't, and I argued that in all of my time on the recovery team and since and realized I just needed to write a scientific paper and get it in the scientific literature. And so I teamed up with two other co-authors. One is uh, Ron Nowak, and he was um, a career, he spent his whole career in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And starting, he started measuring canine skulls, wild canine skulls, in the late 1960s for his PhD. And he is, hands down, the world's expert in Canid. Um, physical morphology, like looking, measuring skulls and determining subspecies and species and, um, and whether something has some hybridization in it. The guy's a world-renowned expert. If you, if you look, Google his name on Amazon, he's written um, all kinds of mammals of the world, and um, um, he's just an amazing resource for that. So he was one co-author to deal with the, the physical morphology analysis. The other co-author was David Patkow, who was the president of Wildlife Genetics International in British Columbia and, and um, uh, a, a well-known, well-published wildlife geneticist who owns his own company. He's done thousands of wildlife genetics studies through that company. So I had a morphologist, a guy that was uh, an expert in the physical part. Um, I was really familiar with the historical literature, and we had a geneticist who was real familiar with handling his genetic material. And we wrote a scientific paper on the historical range and, and documented very well what all of the old historians and, and naturalists always said: is that the Mexican wolf was a, a wolf that was in the Sierra Madre of Mexico and dispersed and lived in southeastern Arizona and southwestern New Mexico. That was the historical range of the Mexican wolf. But if you look at uh, at skull measurements and, and reports, historical reports about wolves up on the Mogollon Rim in central Arizona and uh, the Gila National Forest in central New Mexico, those wolves in that central Arizona and New Mexico were intermediate in size uh, between a big plains wolf that was up on the Kaibab in northern Arizona, northern New Mexico, between those big northern wolves in the northern part of our states. And the Mexican wolf in Mexico and the southern part of our states, and that that middle Mogollon rim and in Gila National Forest was a blending, an intermediate, where Mexican wolves dispersed up in there, and um, and also the larger wolves dispersed south from the Southern Rockies and from the Kaibab and from the southern the, the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and so that really was a blending zone in there, uh, and those wolves being part Mexican wolf, part northern wolf and in the intergrade and so that's why fish and wildlife service when they were starting the recovery in the 90s they um they looked at some of the same information and saw that that was an intermediate zone and because there was elk there decided to use that all of that intermediate zone as part of uh mexican wolf range to to focus their recovery in there and, and a good part of it because there's a big block of of uh habitat with a lot of ungulates there and and our agency and, and uh, nobody really has complained about that slight stretch to include the the Mogollon Rim for wolf recovery because they, they had to start somewhere. And the Sky Islands are pretty small and dispersed. It would be hard to focus wolf recovery in an area like that. And that was legitimately a place where Mexican wolves dispersed up into and occupied and blended with uh, the northern wolves. So I, I, I've never had a, a complaint with that expansion. But in my time on the recovery team, a lot of those other people were talking about, well, they're on the rim now, and so we should, you know, they could easily disperse into southern Colorado. They could easily disperse to the Kaibab Plateau, so we should just include the Kaibab in southern Colorado as their range, and I I told them that was a ridiculous argument because if that was how you were going to define where to put wolves, you could keep leapfrogging all the way up to the Arctic Circle with Mexican wolves, and so this paper that I wrote defining the historical range was to try to put a stop to that and try to document. Mexican wolves were in Mexico, southern Arizona, southern New Mexico, and they integrated with a larger wolf in the central part of those states. And so when we talk about recovering wolves, Mexican wolves, where else are we gonna put them? A lot of groups are still arguing, in fact, there's two lawsuits right now, arguing that they need to go in southern Utah and in southern Colorado. And that's not an ecologically valid or a legally valid argument. They need to go in Mexico. That's why we call them Mexico wolves. 90% of their historic range was in Mexico. Um, why would you not focus uh, at least half of the, the recovery in Mexico?
1: And that brings up another subject that kind of makes me smile because I've been going down to Mexico for 20 years and hunting coos deer and goulds turkeys down there and, you know, just love hunting in Mexico. And I, I've, you know, probably have uh, met I'm going to say over 50 different ranchers in Mexico. And I find it hard to believe now this is just me speaking kind of outside the realm of it's just kind of what I've encountered. I find it hard to believe that any one of the Mexican ranchers that I've met, if they had Mexican wolves on their property would not try and extinct and shoot those wolves. I'm I'm not speaking to anyone specific. Mm-hmm. I'm just speaking in general terms how does it? Uh, I would think it would be a challenge for the Mexican government to be involved. I'm curious um, how they are involved in the recovery process and how, since in Mexico landowner and ranchers are king, literally, um, uh, how they're going to. Uh, well, we have public the lands gonna work here in, Mexico, in the United right. Yeah, yeah, we have public lands yeah. in. Arizona, and every pr- pr- pretty much everything in Mexico is private land. Not only that, most of the ranchers that actually own ranches there are, you know, of the most wealthy families with the most uh, power and, and pull, if you will, politically. <laughs> I, I kind of mm-hmm. chuckle because I hear all of what you're saying, and I really appreciate the work that you've done. To, it sounds like you're, you're the only one that's been you know, basically batting for w- trying to keep all this in balance, um,
2: but I, I just I think it's going to be a challenge in Mexico. How is it going? Do you know? Yeah, it will it will be a challenge in Mexico. It's a challenge anywhere, and, and Mexico carries with it its own um, its own difficulties. But we have um, we, they get signed agreements from landowners uh, for certainly releasing wolves and in areas where wolves are going to occupy, and so they have. I don't know how many they have now. I've heard, but this is old information, a year, year and a half old, that they had seven or eleven landowners that had signed agreements. And there's Mexican biologists that have been working for a couple decades on um, Mexican wolf habitat analysis and trying to get Mexican wolves on the ground. And they began in 2011 releasing wolves in Mexico. The first, um, the first release was in an area that was not in any of the areas that any of the biologists in u s or Mexico identified as as um, good Mexican wolf habitat. there was some political wrangling because someone wanted them released uh, on their ranch I think, and it was not good habitat. They released them in the middle of a uh, heavily dominated agricultural area where everybody' was raising livestock and within the first month or so five out of the six of them were poisoned and and everybody was kind of mad because that was not really. That was not a good area to release them, um, and I don't know what happened. In I don't know what happened to make that that precipitated that release site. But the subsequent releases, and they've released uh, I don't know how many other releases of wolves, pears here and there, have been more in the higher elevation areas where the primary production is timber, not not livestock, which seems like a no-brainer. Um, and they and they're releasing it on areas ranches and, and areas where they have agreement from the people that support wolves and one of the biologists I'm working with was just telling me that one of the places down there where they're releasing wolves or someone he met years ago um, that that came to him because he found that he's working on wolves and this rancher wanted wolves he was very um, conservation oriented and wanted wolves uh, on his place and said why can't why can't we use my place for releasing wolves and Fast forward, it was about ten years later. I think that he actually is one that has wolves on his um, on his place now. So, there's, it's it's definitely not going to be easy. But there's there's people that are supportive of wolf recovery, and they're working with those people and Mexican biologists like Carlos Lopez Gonzalez, who's a, a prof- professor down at the University of Cadetiro, and he's worked with carnivores and Mexican wolves his whole career, probably close to 30 years now at least 20 i've known him for 25 years so um, he's been working on wolves a long time and he has a crew of people out there and they're out there day in and day out talking with the ranchers they know the ranchers um and and working with and and they're able to navigate the um, a lot of the drug cartel um, lands down there and, and be able to operate in there they've been pretty successful there's about 30 wolves in the wild in mexico there's one Pair that has produced litters in the wild the last four years in a row Um, so there's there's challenges but I'm not sure Mexico's doing any worse than we did in the White Mountains for the first um, five or ten years when we had so many of them shot and um, initially so it's going to take just continued work with uh, the landowners but when we had a series of six workshops in the last two years well now three years um, we had four of them in the U.S. and two of them in, in Mexico. And at a couple of those, we had high-ranking Mexican officials at the meeting talking about how important Mexican wolves were. We had um, uh, uh, Pepe Burnell who is the head of endangered species in Mexico, and, and he stood up at one of our meetings and, and told us that, that Mexico endangered species has three priorities, the monarch butterfly, the baquita, which is a little dolphin in the Sea of Cortez, and the Mexican wolf. And, and um and that was their priorities and they wanted to work on those those three species now um funding for the last year in, in mexico had was was really cut for mexican wolves and so um they they don't have always have the funding or for whatever reason choose not to have the funding where it needs to go but um the the mexico the uh the recovery team down there that's working with radio collared wolves in Mexico has gotten funding, has continued to operate in there, and they have more releases planned for this year. So it's it's tough. There's a lot of challenges down there, but they're um, they're struggling like we struggled when we only had a handful of wolves on the landscape and they kept getting shot. You brought up something that leads me to
1: another question of the Mexican wolf recovery. Where does the money come from to implement this
2: recovery? Yeah, a good part of it just comes from the Fish and Wildlife Service. They're the agency that's responsible for implementing the Endangered Species Act. Um, and so most of the funding comes from there. Arizona Game of Fish has has five um, positions. I think only four of them are filled right now, but we have five paid positions working on Mexican wolf recovery and, and have – um, people dedicated to that. We have uh, wolf biologists, we have someone else who's in charge of an uh, inter, uh, what we call the IFT, um, interagency field team, and that's a field team of the Fish and Wildlife Service and Arizona Game and Fish. New Mexico uh, Department of Game and Fish used to be part of that. They're not currently. They may uh, in the future, but they have the different agencies working together as one team on the ground with Wolves in Arizona New Mexico to keep wolves, um, radio collared. They just uh, had a capture, like they do every February, a capture and account to get an annual survey of the wolves and, um, and to radio collar a lot of young ones from last year because it's important. We've got about half of the Mexican wolf population radio collared in Arizona New Mexico and, and that's important because we, we need to keep close tabs on them and, and monitor them closely so we know if they're increasing in distribution, um, so we can follow them up and see how many wolves are in each pack, we can follow them up and see what kind of reproduction they had. Uh, estimate mortality, it's, it's just important right now to keep close tabs on them, and, and we are. It's pretty intensive management.
1: Are you familiar with um, the, the wolves that, that are collared, and, and are you familiar enough with it to know how are they doing and what are they primarily feeding on? Is, is there any way to know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and what are those effects, uh, you know, on elk and deer? And, you know, what's going on with the coyotes and the mountain lions in the same place where the wolves are? I know that's a bunch of questions all in one, but, you know, talk
2: yeah. a little bit about um, that. Sure, I can I can probably knock the last part out pretty easy that, we haven't done intensive studies where we have collared lions and collared coyotes and, coyote and collared wolves where, where we know much about that interaction. I, I suspect just from what we know about wolves um, being recovered in other places that in the areas where we have a dense presence of wolves, I can almost guarantee you the coyote population is quite a bit lower because they're just not very tolerant. Uh, wolves are not very tolerant of, of um of coyotes in their territory so i'm sure where we've got the densest wolf pack uh, occupancy we've got lower coyotes i um, not sure about mountain lions i'm not sure if anybody knows that much about um that interaction is not as direct as as coyotes for sure but we probably don't know much about mountain lion and and wolf interactions um how the how the population's doing the the since 2009 um, well, let me back up. I can actually give a little history about when we recovered wolves. The population increased um, pretty dramatically. There were some early mortalities. We got to 2003, and that population increase was starting to raise the ire of a uh, ranching community. They're starting for the first time to see some losses of the cattle, and they they um, were starting to exert some influence that looked like the uh, the Mexican wolf program, the recovery program, might be in jeopardy. Like if this, if if Complaints reached the level of the legislature, and legislature wanted to act. They could they could defund the Mexican Wolf um, uh, program at the national level, and and we didn't want that to happen. And so we decided that uh, we would be we being everybody, all the agencies involved, be more aggressive in taking care of of problem wolves that that preyed on livestock. And so from 2003 to 2009 we had a, a little different tact and way to deal with, with problem wolves, more removing them quicker, dealing um, with problem wolves a little faster, not letting them out there in the landscape to, to keep preying on cattle. And for that period of 2003 to 2009, the, the growth of the, the Mexican wolf population stopped. It just flatlined and didn't continue to grow. And, and this is a, a wolf recovery project. And so when it flatlines for that number of years, um, that's not good. You're not recovering wolves if that's your goal and it certainly was so in 2009 there was a court injunction forcing the agencies to to stop being so aggressive on problem wolves and so since 2009 and we still take care of problem wolves periodically there there's a wolf that um has three strikes and it, and so it's removed uh, a lot of times removed lethally um because it's a chronic problem wolf and you have to do that in wolf recovery or you you'll lose all credibility and, and support for the whole program, and things can be even worse. So since 2009 to the present, the uh, Mexican wolf population's increased on the average of 14% per year. Um, not exactly 14% every year, but on the average, um, it's recovered. So the wolf population recovery is is doing well. We're, this year's survey um, found 114 wolves, which is only one more than last year's count of uh, 113, but overall, from 2009 to the present, you can't argue that um, we're slowly getting Mexican wolves back onto the landscape, which is our goal of, of recovery.
1: And is that 114 in Arizona or 114 in Arizona and New Mexico?
2: That's it, um, No, it's 14% for the Arizona and New Mexico population, for the, the U.S. population. Oh. oh, okay, a 14% yeah. increase. But 14, how many 14% wolves? 14% increase.
1: How many wolves? do we think are alive in Arizona, and how many in New Mexico? Uh,
2: I don't know that breakdown. There's 114 in both states combined, and it's it's a, it's a pretty close to 50-50. It's always like 40-60 um, one way or another. There's a couple of packs that go back and forth across the border, but they've always stayed pretty close to an um, even number on both sides. Okay, so for the 320 in the U.S., we're
1: still – say, 200, give or take, uh, shy of what
2: the recovery goal and plan would be. Yeah, we're still 200 shy of what would be the minimum number you'd have to maintain them above um, to to say that they're no longer in danger of extinction, take them off the, the list. Okay. And so
1: even though a 14% increase, one – you know, I guess you could say that they're not overpopulating very fast. And, and so the, I might have before this conversation said, oh, yeah, they, you know, they, they mate like like rabbits and, you know, they're, they're going to be everywhere really quickly. The, the reality is they were introduced in 1982 and they've just
2: slowly, slowly, slowly built to 114, right? Yeah, introduced in 98. Yeah, the 82 was the recovery plan when that was written. But um, okay. so the 80, 80, 89, no, 98, 98 they were released for the first time. So from 98 okay. to the present, we have 114. Yeah, we so in this, 20 biggest, years,
1: we have 114. Is that 114 mm-hmm. or 114
2: pairs? No, 114 wolves. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have um, 22. This, this year, survey, we had 22 wolf packs in Arizona and New Mexico combined. And uh, we had potential of 26 pairs. Well, we have 26 pairs that are potential breeders going into this breeding season this year. And if you say, look, another 20 years into the
1: future, if the conditions, if everything in the last 20 years remained the same, that would put us at, you know, basically 228 or 230 wolves. I've got to think the next 20 years, the recovery efforts will, the the wolves will actually beat that number. In, In other words, it would surprise me if in 10 years we did, we
2: didn't get another
1: 114. What yeah, thought? very possible,
2: right? Yeah, absolutely, because it's an exponential growth. They don't they don't grow on this flat line. If you think of it as a graph, they don't grow on this flat, steady, increasing line. They it's an exponential growth. So they wolves in other places they hit a point where all of a sudden they're dispersing and starting new packs, and they can they can grow fast, and that. That was the, the center of our conversation over the last couple of years is that they're growing pretty well, and you're, we're going to hit a point where there's going to be a lot of Mexican wolves out there, and, and we need to have this plan in place and be prepared to, to deal with that so we don't have okay, 1,700 wolves before Congress delist them. Okay, and that's my biggest concern, and I think
1: uh, I'm sure it's your biggest concern as well so with yep. that being said, if someone out there says, "Oh, that Heffelfinger, he's just a wolf lover. He just wants wolves <laughs> everywhere," your argument would be actually whether or not you like wolves. I, I don't really care about that part. My part is no. I was part of the wolf writing re- the wolf recovery plan, and I'm one. I'm speaking for you, Jim, and I want you to correct <laughs> me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Uh, I'm the one that wants to make sure that if we get over the 320 that we have checks and balances in place so that we can actually manage these wolves. I I, Jim Heffelfinger am, am not one that want to see these get to
2: 1700 and out of control like they did in Yellowstone. Yep that's absolutely true and that's what I've that's what I've been working an awful lot on in the in the last seven years I do like wolves i I think it would be so cool to be out with my son turkey hunting on the edge of a meadow and and calling and have this pack of wolves five or six wolves um, come trotting through the meadow I think that's just really cool I would just love to hear wolves howl when I'm camped up there at, at big lake I think that's really neat to have them on the landscape but they, we need to manage all wildlife species and there's no one species like wolves that is so important we're going to put it on a pedestal and and let it damage or impact all the other native wildlife species that everybody else likes to to see whether you hunt or not whether you even the wolf lovers like to go up and camp and see elk when they're when they're up there and so we we absolutely want to return them to the the southwestern landscape but but in a way that they're balanced and not being able to manage them, not being able to control them at all is not gonna create balance, it's gonna create havoc. And, and we know that and we've, we've worked hard to, to have recovery criteria that, and not only I talk a lot about recovery criteria that's reasonable, but what's more important is as we were building the recovery criteria, it was, it was important and we worked really hard to build a good solid scientific foundation to defend those criteria we use so that when we get some wolves and, and maybe we want to delist wolves and some environmental groups come and start attacking, well, that recovery criteria is not very good because of this and that. We want to be able to show, trot out our science and say, no, look, this is this is a solid science supporting these recovery criteria that make it a lot harder for environmental groups to try to poke holes in it and, and try to uh, keep them on the endangered species list so what you said before is is just exactly right i've been working my butt off for a a lot of years now to help recover the mexican wolf because it's a a native species and i think it belongs uh, on the back on the landscape but doing it in such a way that it it's not going to um to impact our elk herds like like we saw in, in yellowstone for fairly different reasons we we just want them back on the landscape we want a lot of elk. I, I love. I just about only put in for cow elk tags, and so when I was on the recovery team, I you know I I mentioned that well, you know we we can't have our elk populations cut in half, and some of the other people on the team said, why not? You guys have got too many elk. That's why you have cow tags. Um, you know I'm. I, that's not where we're going with this. I love to. I, my dad's 84, and I've got four sons, and and we absolutely love going out and getting a couple cows and in the freezer cow elk in the freezer so I, i'm not um advocating for replacing cow tags with wolf predation but i think there's certainly room for um still a lot of cow tags where we need to reduce elk populations and still have wolves in a in a managed situation on the landscape
1: so you would say to red rednecks like me and some of the people that listen <laughs> to my podcast that hey guys I'm on your side, but I also, I, I feel like after talking to Jim, it's like, man, Jim's actually, Jim's actually, if we, lo- if we lost Jim in this fight or in, in, you know, if we lost Jim where he doesn't have an input on this recovery program, it could have been left in the hands of some of these. You know, very one-sided leaning groups, and we could be in a completely different situation than we are now. Um, and and I so, think we would have been. Yeah. Okay.
2: So and I'm I mean, not. I need don't need want to, to just, sound self-aggrandizing, but my agency was forward-thinking enough that I was a regional biologist in Tucson for and, and did nothing but game management. I just decided how many tags to um, to i out I'm just dealing with all hunting running check stations and trying to provide as much hunting opportunity as possible provide some trophy opportunities that's what i did for 23 years and the last couple of years of that i was involved in this wolf recovery and and um they needed me when when wolf recovery planning ramped up again my agency needed me to 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 go back into uh, helping with wolf recovery and and they were forward-thinking enough to establish a, a new position, wildlife science coordinator, that got me out of my day-to-day, all of my onerous um, regional biologist duties, and allowed it put me in a position where I could help lead this effort, pull the science together, and, and we've written several scientific papers that support all of the things I'm talking about today of managing wolves responsibly, and, and I was able to, to kind of lead and shepherd other people And pulling all the science together to try to make sure we had the most reasonable practical wolf recovery plan so um i'm i'm just thankful my agency saw that as important enough to to give put me in a position where i had time to do that
1: and and so with that being said too i mean guys like myself should should realize that hey the Game and Fish, the Arizona Game and Fish could have done things a lot differently. We we better be happy that we have guys like Jim and we have guys at the Arizona Game and Fish that allowed Jim to be in the position that he's in to do what he's doing to make sure that we did sound science. We based the recovery plan off of real sound uh uh platform or or base if you will so that when the time comes, which we all know it will come, uh, that it's based on really strict science that when the environmental groups come to try and say, we don't want you to delist them, that there will be a, a baseline or a plan in place that will allow sound science to fight some of that um,
2: emotionalism, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just as just one pointed example of uh, the previous team that I was on and some of the things I was battling, they constructed one criteria, which means you, and one of many, they had a whole bunch of criteria, one criteria they were going to go with that I opposed and, and wrote a dissenting opinion against. One criteria was that we need to document um, a certain number of wolves entering each of three different wolf populations in the southwest Um, At least two wolves every eight years entering each of those three populations uh, in order to make sure we had enough genetic diversity. And so this is all kind of a black box hocus pocus just in order to have genetic diversity. And how are we going to measure and prove that two wolves in the last eight years entered each one of the three populations they set up? That was just, that's an example of a recovery criteria that they were using that you would never be able to document and thus never be able to delist the wolf. They had these complicated recovery criteria. And so when you see our recovery criteria of a certain number of wolves, and we also have another criteria that that a certain number of um, new individuals need to be introduced into the population, which we propose to do with cross-fostering, which is taking very newborn within nine days or so captive wolf pup's and putting them into a den with newborn wild wolf pups, and uh, the wild mother raises those extra two pups with her four pups as if they were hers, and so you have six pups. Two of those actually were hand-selected pups from captivity with valuable genetic material that now are just raised in the wild and don't get into trouble because they're wild wolves. So it's an example of the way that, that we um, propose and are actively doing that successfully Introducing new genetic material, whereas other people, environmental groups, and some people in academia, their solution is just to open the floodgates and, and release a bunch of captive-raised adult wolves, um, basically zoo animals, out into the wild, where we know from history they get in trouble, they get killed, they get hit on the highway, they come up and attack someone's dog, and they get shot. They have to be lethally removed from uh, the wild by the Fish and Wildlife Service because they're getting into trouble and um, and so there's, there's a lot of things we built into the recovery planning to reduce the impact of, of wolves, but still still fulfill our, um, our desire and, and, I think, our obligation to return Mexican wolves to the southwest. Jim, I, w- I really appreciate bending your ear
1: um, on this episode, and I want to give you a chance, if you had any concluding thoughts, Uh, in regards to anything we talked about today. I want to thank you for your time, Um, and I want to thank you for all the work that you've done uh, for Sportsman. It sounds like, you know, I've really learned a lot today, and I hope the listeners have too. I'm somewhat wrestling with some of my own formulations in my head of, you know, some of the prior concepts that I had about Wolves, and so I'll, I'll need to do some thinking, but I want to give you a chance to,
2: uh, just you have any concluding thoughts about anything we've discussed today I um, I can leave you with a quote from David Mech that I mentioned that he, he's been working on wolves for 60 years I know it sounds strange but he actually has been working on wolves for 60 years and um, he spoke at the University of Arizona once and and also um, has this in a manuscript of, of his but he he told everybody in the audience that um Those who think that the Mexican wolf return not the Mexican wolf in general, but those who think returning the wolf to the wild is going to create some kind of utopian fantasy land where the birds and the butterflies and the beavers and the willows uh, all recover and live in harmony, He says that's more of a religion than than it is real science, but he says also he's quick to add that those people that think that re- returning the wolf to uh, our landscape are just going to decimate all the big game herds across the The west that also is more religion than it is science but the reality is that we can restore wolves and in a lot of cases not really even see an impact on some of the the ungulate populations and and maybe we and we will see an impact in some areas on ungulate populations but we've got um, we've got tools in place to, to deal with those local spots but because one local elk herd may be impacted by a high density of wolves isn't a reason to to uh, oppose wolf recovery, you know, across the West. I think we've got w- the future of hunting. This is probably the more important uh, point to, to leave you with: that the future of hunting is going to rely on how the average eighty, um, how the average person views hunters and hunting, and our intention. And we're at about five percent of the people that hunt. So, of those other ninety-five percent of the people that don't hunt. How do they view hunting? Do they view hunting as contributing to conservation and things they're interested in, or, um, or not? And most of those people really think wolves are cool. Now, I'm sure they all live in an urban environment; they don't have to deal with any of the consequences or any anything negative about wolves. But still, it doesn't matter. A majority of the public likes wolves, and they like the idea of wolves being returned. And so, I don't think it serves sportsmen in the future hunting very well to be to position themselves on the other side of the table and say, we don't want wolves, we don't want any wolves back. I think we we need to be reasonable about it and and support wolf recovery in areas, but only in a situation where we've done our due diligence and doing everything we can to make sure that wolves are managed just like overabundant elk populations are managed. And I guess I'll leave with that.
1: Good stuff, man. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, thank you for all the work that you've done. And I admire, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i happy that your uh, book, Deer of the Southwest, is being reprinted. And I know it was such a popular hit. I want to encourage the listeners to um, go check uh, Jim out uh, at deernut.com. Uh, also, um, I enjoy uh, following your Instagram, and I believe that's jim.deer.com. Uh, yeah, Jim. Deer. It's D-E-E-R-E, like John Deere,
2: but it's Jim Deere. Um, and you might, might notice the you might notice the avatar. I changed that to a mule deer too, instead of the John Deere whitetail. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I just looked at it and it's got the, it's got the G2. It's got the fork of a mule deer. I love it. Yeah. Fork G2. And then I had to go back in and shorten the tail. I forgot to shorten the tail the first time, but yeah, absolutely. Jim, Jim Deer on Instagram. That's awesome. Jim, Jim Dot Deer on Instagram. Uh, and that's,
1: uh, D E E R E. And, uh, Jim, thanks so much. I uh, look forward to seeing you down the road and, uh, We'll have to do a deer uh, podcast uh, maybe in the summer here, and I've got a bunch of questions about uh, deer and mule deer and, and cow's deer or coo's deer, in, in, uh, <laughs> and so we can have all kinds of conversations. So thank you for your time. Yep, I'm, I'm
2: happy to come back. I always appreciate talking about this stuff. Sounds good, buddy. Take care. Thanks.